Yeah, you know, about a billion and a half years ago, uh, the uh, mitochondria, our ancestral mitochondria, uh, was the first organism that developed uh, the enzymes to handle oxygen more effectively. And that gave it a competitive advantage. It was engulfed by larger bacteria, and they developed a very happy cooperative relationship that would evolve into multicellular organisms, into animals, and of course, eventually into us. It does mean that we depend on those mitochondria to generate energy for our cells that have since specialized into, you know, uh, nerves, bone, gut, uh, uh, endocrine uh, glands. Uh, and when the mitochondria are working well, that tissue, that organ works really well. But when the mitochondria have been poisoned by uh, toxins, such as uh, mercury, cadmium, or solvents, or insecticides, then the mitochondria doesn't work well. Uh, it develops a lot of oxidative stress, can't make as much energy, and that organ uh, becomes uh, dysfunctional. And so you may develop brain fog, or chronic pain, or heart failure, or uh, visual dimming, or worsening of your diabetes. Trying to help that mitochondria function better can lead to more effective tissues, more effective organs. So mitochondrial supplements can be very helpful. But uh, often, uh, people, if you keep feeding yourself a terrible diet, uh, uh, keeping yourself surrounded with toxic chemicals, those mitochondrial supplements will not do very much for you. So you got to stop poisoning the mitochondria. So that's where uh, a very targeted diet uh, and uh, paying attention to your toxic exposures has such a profound impact. Welcome to the Collective Insights Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Terry Walls. She healed herself from progressive MS and now conducts clinical trials, testing the efficacy of therapeutic lifestyle to treat multiple sclerosis-related symptoms. In this episode, we dive into lifestyle and diet changes that promote good health. Thanks so much for listening to our show. It'd really help us out if you took a minute to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes so that more people can find our podcast. The podcast is brought to you by Neurohacker Collective, where we offer a line of cognitive enhancement supplements called Qualia. Check the website neurohacker.com to see how you can save 50% off your first order of Qualia Mind or Qualia Focus. Stay tuned for the April launch of our new product, Eternus, designed to beat aging and to beat stress. Thanks again for joining us. Now let's jump into the show. So welcome to Collective Insights. My name is Dr. Heather Sanderson. I am a contributor here at Collective Insights and at Neurohacker Collective, as well as the founder and uh, medical director of my own clinic, North County Natural Medicine here in San Diego. And we, everyone at Neurohacker is so excited and delighted all morning. They've been saying how um, excited they are to listen to our conversation with Dr. Terry Walls, who's joining me today. Welcome, Dr. Walls. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. Um, so let me quickly introduce you. Dr. Terry Walls is a clinical professor at the University of Iowa, where she con conducts clinical trials testing the efficacy of therapeutic lifestyle to treat multiple sclerosis-related symptoms. In addition, she is the author of The Walls Protocol, How to, Be How to Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine, and the cookbook that goes with it, The Walls Protocol Cooking for Life, the revolutionary modern paleo plan to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions. 
You can learn more about her work from her website, www.terrywalls.com, and she hosts the Walls Protocol Seminar every summer where anyone can learn how to implement the protocol with ease and success. So Dr. Wells, let's get into it. I'm so excited. You know, you have a cookbook that goes with your protocol and the diet. I, as a clinician, recommend your diet all day long. I love it. So break it down for me. How how does it work? So the first thing is I have several levels so people can uh, transition uh, gradually because I think um, uh, it's important to give people uh, tools they can be successful with. Uh, So the first level uh, is the Wells diet. Uh, and the key elements there are that we exclude the most inflammatory foods, uh, gluten, uh, the protein in wheat, rye, barley, uh, casein, the protein in dairy, uh, and eggs. Uh, and that's because those three foods are the most common unrecognized food allergens. And then we ramp up the vegetables, in particular uh, green leafy vegetables, uh, sulfur-contained vegetables in the cabbage, onion, mushroom family, and then deeply pigmented uh, vegetables like beets, carrots, uh, peppers, uh, and, and berries, uh, fruits. Uh, I, I, people can still have the white-colored fruits like pears, apples, bananas, but that's after they've had nine cups of the green sulfur and other deeply pigmented. So for most folks, they aren't eating that many apples uh, and bananas anymore because they're filling up on these other even more nutrient-dense foods. So let's get into the why. Why these foods and why some foods and not others? Okay, so I I remove foods that people are more likely to have unrecognized food sensitivity uh, because gluten sensitivity uh, is uh, uh, a root cause for problems uh, for many people with neuro and psychiatric psychological issues. Uh, uh, People with schizophrenia, uh, uh, Parkinson's, uh, and um, MS have higher rates of antibodies against casein uh, and or gluten. Uh, so for, for those simple reasons, I would take uh, gluten and dairy out. Uh, eggs are the third most common uh, food sensitivity, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, allergy, asthma. Uh, and, I, and for myself, I have a severe uh, egg allergy as well. Uh, so we move those foods, then we have to ramp up these other foods, uh, greens, great source of vitamin K1. Um, And there's uh, more and more evidence that vitamin K1, which is metabolized by bacteria to vitamin K2, MK7, uh, which get absorbed by our ileum, transported to our liver, and then further metabolized to K2, MK4. So that vitamin's great for mineralizing your teeth and your bones, but it's also very important because it's an activator for uh, neural stem cells the progenitor cells that will uh, uh, make the cells that help nurture and support myelin. Uh, So this is a a, a great way to support the brain's ability to repair itself, uh, having more greens. In addition, the greens will have a lot of magnesium. They'll have a lot of uh, uh, antioxidants that are key for retinal health uh, and, and, and our brain overall. So when so you talk about greens. lots of leafy greens, how much? You, uh, part of what so, I love about your diet is that you're really specific about how much. So these nine yes. cups, how many of those? Nine are... cups. So uh, you think of this as a, a dinner plate covered with vegetables, and you want to have three dinner plates covered with vegetables. Uh, and so it's a dinner plate covered with greens. You can have them raw or cooked. Um, if they're cooked, of course, when you get cu- when you cook three cups of greens, that shrinks down to not a whole lot, maybe uh, three-fourths of a cup 
of greens. Uh, and then the but that still uh, counts, right? That still counts still as counts. your three cups. Still okay, so it's three cups raw. It's how you measure it. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, then the sulfur containing cabbage family, onion family, mushroom family. Uh, uh, sulfur is very important to our uh, metabolism in terms of our ability to detoxify compounds. Uh, it will also boost the enzymes involved in uh, glutathione production, uh, which is a, a very potent antioxidant for our cells. And it boosts the enzymes involved in making gamma-aminobutyric acid, which is a very important calming neurotransmitter for the brain. It reduces uh, neuroexcitotoxicity from too much glutamate. So very helpful. Uh, and again, I'm looking for a, a plate full of cabbage-containing uh, uh, onion, uh, uh, mushroom-containing vegetables. Now, garlics are so potent that two cloves of garlic is equivalent to one cup of cabbage. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's a, there's a little shortcut for the, the, those. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, black fermented garlic, particularly yummy, delicious. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so, <clears throat> I mean, I, I can munch on those uh, sort of like a candy to me. It's just so, so yummy. Um, and then mushrooms have a long history for medicinal use. Uh, mushrooms uh, stimulate uh, natural uh, killer cells which will help prime your adaptive and innate immune immunity. And, uh, we have increasing recognition uh, now that we're looking at our uh, body tissues from uh, the DNA and RNA. We are not as sterile as we thought. That is shocking. Our, our blood and our brain is not as sterile as we thought. We keep everything in control by our immune cells. Uh, so with so, the mushrooms, there's a little bit of a nuance there. What are your What is your opinion about people who maybe have been told they have candida or fungal overgrowth? Do you still recommend well, mushrooms? You know, I, I still do. I, I suggest that they try cooking with them. Uh, they probably won't tolerate the fermented foods, but they will likely tolerate cooked mushrooms. However, I do tell my patients, you do have to work with your primary care doc because we're all uh, individual, and it's, so it's a matter of, your genetics, your microbiome's genetics, and you may discover that you can't metabolize greens as well. And so instead of having three cups of greens, maybe you need to have just one cup of greens, or that you can't metabolize sulfur as efficiently. And so you can't handle three cups of sulfur, or you can't handle uh, the onion family very well, but you do great with mushrooms. So th this is the public health message, mm -hmm. but I want people to work with their personal physician and to observe their own individual response. Okay. And individualize it for themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And then the and other then, three then, cups. Go uh, ahead. And then the pigmented, you know, again, a very simple message. You cut your food item in half and you look at it. Is it pigmented all the way through? If it is, then that's in the uh, pigmented category because those pigments are a great marker for polyphenols and the antioxidants. Uh, and we have many, many studies that tell us the more color you have, the lower the rate of obesity, of diabetes, of mental health problems, of cancer, of heart disease, lower all-cause mortality. And we have multiple studies showing uh, particularly the blue, purple, black pigments are uh, cognitive uh, protective. So that you have improvements in cognitive function and people have early Alzheimer's and cognitive decline with just a cup of uh, blueberries. Yeah, Not some uh, some good examples. Blueberries, beets, carrots. What else is on that list? Uh, so beets, carrots, squash, 
you know, uh, the colored squash, uh, watermelon, great source of uh, lycopene, uh, tomatoes, uh, uh, peppers, um, uh, the stone fruits, cherries, peaches, uh, plums, uh, the citrus fruits, uh, oranges, lemons, uh, limes, grapefruits. Uh, so all of those would be uh, uh, pawpaws, uh, which is one of my favorite uh, fruits here in the Midwest. Uh, it's, it's a avocado that has mutated and can grow in the north. It is just like incredibly delicious. It is uh, orange like a, um, a peach, but it has this rich uh, fat uh, like an avocado. And it is one of the best things about having late September uh, in Iowa is you get to go have pawpaws. You're and making have, me hungry. <laughs> I have three trees in my yard uh, because we love them so much. Yum, yum. And I've never tried that, so I'm going to have to get one of those. Um, yes, you'll have to come visit me in late September and then we can have some fresh off the tree. Agree. Be careful because I'll show up. <laughs> um, so tell me, there. I have to tell our listeners that you are surrounded by uh, stuffed poop emojis. So yes, tell me, poop. tell me about, we've talked about what goes in. So I, this is also one of my favorite topics is elimination because I focus clinically so much on toxins. So tell yes. me the, the significance for you of your, po- the poop emojis the that poop surround emojis. you. <laughs> you know, so when I was a resident, we made a lot of fun of our patients who were so focused on their bowels. We just thought that was crazy. And now, of course, I am so apologizing to those uh, wise elders that I had. Uh, our, our, our microbiome uh, digests our food, uh, and so all those mi- uh, microbial metabolites that are small will get into our bloodstream, and they help us run the chemistry of life. Now, if you go back thousands of generations and you had a spontaneous mutation, and so you didn't have the enzymatic step to make compound XYZ uh, in your ancestral mother, but if her microbes did, and that uh, XYZ still got made in your gut and diffused back into your bloodstream, she had uh, reproductive success. And at that moment, that important enzyme got exported from my genome into my bacterial genome. It was passed down through our ancestral vaginal vaults as they gave birth to their uh, children. And that's why we have about 25,000 genes instead of the 100,000 genes that scientists predicted based on our, the number of proteins that we have to make. We therefore need our microbiome to have lots of diversity so we can have those 5 million to 9 million different genes that can make all those microbial metabolites that can get into our bloodstream to help us run the chemistry of life more effectively and more healthfully. And as our microbiome gets more and more narrowed with less diversity, instead of having 5 million genes, I have 2 million genes and 100,000 genes, then I'm not making stuff. And the efficiency and vibrancy of my health steadily declines. So we can spend a lot of money getting our poop analyzed. But you know, when I talk to my microbiome scientists, the truth is uh, that doesn't, we don't really know how to interpret that data. Because the microbes are, are swapping genes all the time. What really matters is the metabolites. And we aren't sure which metabolites we, we really need to thrive. So again, I, I think all this stuff incredibly simply. I tell my patients, when you have a bowel movement, stand up, turn around, look. Is it, are they rocks? Are they sort of dry logs? Are they soft snakes? Is it pudding or tea? If it's pudding or tea, 
you have too much inflammation, and either you have a inflammatory bowel disease, a chronic parasite, chronic infection, uh, we need to investigate. If you have snakes, perfect. Um, if you have uh, rocks, you need more fiber, so more fermented food, more vegetables, maybe uh, chia seed pudding, flaxseed pudding. If you have logs that are passed easily, that's probably okay. If the snakes, and many people with a neurologic problem, uh, we have difficulty controlling our sphincter, and the snakes get into our pants. And so even though that's sort of the perfect poop, if it's getting to your pants, that's not going to work. And so people have to back off on their fiber so they can have soft, easily passed stool that they can appropriately control. So you said something in here um, that I really want to highlight because I think it's unique and not everyone is taking the step. So you certainly, you know, give credence to the people who are testing poop and seeing what what's in there. But it's not as important as maybe the fact that um, something we didn't realize that that the microbes that are in the poop are actually getting into the bloodstream and potentially into the brain and influencing our biochemistry. Is that what I heard you say? Not quite, but close. So it's the microbes making metabolites, and they digest our food, and uh, they make these smaller molecules and metabolites. Those metabolites get into our bloodstream, and we rely on those metabolites. Now, it's true, some of the microbes get into our bloodstream and are there, and some of the microbes and viruses get into our brain, and they're there. Um, but what I think is vital is the metabolites. The, that's how the microbes digest our food and each other's byproducts, those we depend on for our health. And we do not yet know what metabolites are most optimal. There's a lot of work being done now looking at the microbiome and the uh, metabolome, uh, and our lab is doing some of that. Um, so I, I'm really very excited to have a microbiologist uh, as part of our research team. And now I've got uh, more nutrition scientists on our research team. And so in my current study, we'll be analyzing the poop. Yay, poop. We'll be uh, analyzing the metabolome, uh, which is very exciting. That's great. Okay, so yeah, you you do a lot of research, and that sort of sets you apart from a lot of other clinicians. Um, yeah. Tell me, what gets you most excited about research, and what do you see the role of research in modern medicine being? Well, uh, research, if we're going to change clinical practice, we need to have published peer-reviewed research that can be replicated. And so the typical role is you have an alert clinician that sees an unexpected finding, writes a case report, and maybe a case series. And then that inspires an early feasibility study to say, like, okay, can other people do this? Is it safe? And then you begin to have uh, uh, larger trials. And so that's the path I've gone down, case report, case series, multiple pilot studies, and now larger clinical trials. And uh, because our results are so remarkably positive, now my peers, who at first thought I was a little eccentric, uh, now think, well, you know, maybe I am onto something. And now in the MS world, uh, our studies are being analyzed as part of those meta-analyses. And so now people are, are, are talking about well, it's very interesting work that Walls is doing with these very exciting preliminary results yet. Uh, and so we're being validated. But science is a very slow, methodical process, as it should be. And my, my role in life is that I'm teaching the public at the same time about what I'm doing and why. I uh, then conduct the clinical science um, to build the uh, peer-reviewed, validated science that says, Here's the mechanisms of why this works. It's safe, and here are the consequences. And then I run around uh, the world teaching 
clinicians who want to use these concepts in their clinical practice as well. Sounds like you stay busy. So, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so tell me, how does the research that you do, where it's more of a lifestyle approach, how does that fit into sort of this hierarchy of double-blind placebo-controlled trials? Oh, sure. So it's really easy to do a double-blind placebo-controlled trial when you have pills that look alike and uh, the researcher and the uh, patient do not know. Uh, and so drug development is much easier to do. When we're doing a diet, people know what they're eating. And when we're doing a lifestyle, they know if they're meditating or they're exercising. So you can't blind the participant. You can't really blind the researcher. You can blind the data analyst. And you can blind the person doing the assessing. Uh, and so that's what we do, and that's what uh, diet and lifestyle researchers do. Uh, and so it's a different kind of research, different kind of analysis than is done uh, with the drug development folks. Uh, so it's important to have uh, rigorous design, uh, and so you can control uh, things as thoroughly as you can. Um, and it, you know, it's very exciting. So I was uh, uh, right. We're writing, publishing all the time. Uh, and one of my uh, most recent papers, the reviewer asked us to uh, put some comments in about the other uh, diet and lifestyle studies being done in MS. Uh, so we did, we added that, and there are about 12 uh, dietary intervention studies being done now. What is exciting is when I look back, when I started doing this in 2009, I was it. No one else was doing it. Then we had one other person uh, uh, do a uh, low saturated fat study. Very exciting. Um, and, and that got published, you know, and we're publishing our little pilot data uh, coming out. And then the MS Society started funding dietary intervention studies uh, because of the uh, public pressure that they had as a result of my work. Uh, and it's very exciting that they were willing to do that. And, and now because of the early work that the MS Society is funding and, and the NIH, there are 12 studies going on, uh, low saturated fat, uh, uh, low glycemic index, ketogenic diets, several, lots of ketogenic diets, uh, fasting diets, and then of course my work in the modified paleo diet. Incredibly exciting stuff. That We're is finally, fantastic. And that's happening, uh, I think, largely because the public is demanding it. We are pushing for uh, diet and lifestyle research, uh, and uh, that's very exciting. It's such so a testament MS, to that, to your persistence, and then also the the snowball effect and and the public yes. asking for it, and really just going back and not giving up and not saying, oh, that this research model doesn't fit, but more asking like, how can you get the research model to fit what we're what we're doing, what we're showing works. You know, we really have to thank uh, the chair of medicine uh, who watched my decline in my recovery. Uh, when, I, when I recovered, he called me in and gave me the job of getting a case report and then the case series written up. And I was like, what? On myself said, yes, yes, this is so important, Terry. This is what you have to do this year. So I did that. And then he called me back and said, now this is so important. I want you to do a safety and feasibility study. And I'm like, um, you know, I, I don't know how to do that. That's not the kind of research I know how to do because I'll get you mentors. This is this is your assignment. Oh wow! And so and so I saluted uh, and I said okay. And he is a rheumatologist. He's a rheumatologist uh, who studied autoimmune disease, and he understood how remarkable it was that progressive MS had this dramatic recovery. So for those of to... our listeners who don't know your story, we didn't really we we started with your diet because I get so excited about it. But tell our listeners what happened to you. 
Oh, sure. So, you know, I'm an academic internal medicine doc, very skeptical of special diets and supplements, complementary alternative medicine. I taught my residents to be uh, skeptical. <clears throat> but God has a, a mysterious way about him or her. I, and so in 2000, I developed a weakness in my left leg, uh, got evaluated, uh, and was ultimately diagnosed with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Uh, being an academic person, I wanted to uh, get the best care possible, uh, and so I did some research. The Cleveland Clinic uh, was very active in uh, MS research, so I saw their best people, took the newest drugs. Over the next two years, I had one episode of weakness in my right hand. Had I been in a clinical trial, that would have been like a phenomenal success. But the problem was I was going slowly, steadily worse. My Cleveland Clinic doctors told me about the work of Ashton Embry and Lauren Cordain. I, and so I read their papers, uh, got Lauren Cordain's book. And after 20 years of being a vegetarian, I went back to eating meat. Big deal. I continued to decline. The next year, I needed a wheelchair. Uh, then I took uh, mitoxantrum then, then I, and continued to decline. Then the next year, I took uh, Tizabri. I continued to decline. Then I was placed on Celsept. At that point, it's very clear that the best conventional medicine is not stopping the decline towards a veteran, possibly demented life. I have trigeminal neuralgia. My pain was getting more frequent, more severe, more difficult to control. I, and so I'm like, well, I'm going to go back to reading the basic science because I am screwed. i got to do everything I can to try and slow this decline. And I decide mitochondria are the big drivers. I ultimately create a, a mitochondrial supplement cocktail based on uh, uh, papers I was reading about Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease. Nobody in the MS world was talking about mitochondria, by the way, but I thought, you know what the hell, that's probably similar enough. Uh, and so my supplement cocktail slowed my fatigue and slowed this, the speed of my decline. Very grateful. Um, by the summer of 2007, I cannot sit up in a regular chair more than 10 minutes. I can walk about 10 feet using two walking sticks. I have severe fatigue by 10 in the morning. I'm beginning to have problems with brain fog. My chief of staff and the VA and the university have redesigned my job multiple times to let me keep working. I've been on the Institutional Review Board reviewing research for the previous four years, which, by the way, had gotten me more and more comfortable reading science and experimenting on myself. Um, but that summer of 07, my chief of staff calls me to say, I'm going to assign you to the traumatic brain injury clinic come January. Uh, there won't be any residents, and you'll be seeing patients as part of a multidisciplinary team. Now, I knew full well that was a job physically I was unlikely to be able to do. Because I'm going to have you stand up doing these exams and just like, man, it was difficult. Um, and it's like my wife and I talked about this. It's okay, so in January I'll go do that job. And I, either I can do it or I can't, in which case I will have to apply for disability. So that was that was difficult. The following month, I was reviewing an IRB protocol that used electrical stimulation of muscles. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. It's for people who had a spinal cord injury. I, and they wanted to extend the study because the patients liked it a lot and they didn't want to stop. So then I did a quick search. There's 212 articles. That's not so many to read. So I went through those. Most of them were about athletes. There were a few about cerebral palsy uh, and a few about stroke. I convinced my physical therapist to give me a test session, hurt like hell. But, you know, I also still felt energized by it. And so I, I did it in clinic for several weeks, and then we got a home unit, and I added that to my very simple exercise program. 
At that same time, I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine, and they had a course on neuroprotection. I ordered that, and I took that. In the midst of my brain fog, it was a little tricky, but you know, I got through that. I had a longer list of supplements, which I added. And then I had this big aha. Uh, it's about November. Like, you know, I should redesign my paleo diet, sort of around these, this list of supplements I'm taking, figure out where they are in the food supply, and I'll probably get more nutrients that aren't we haven't even described yet if I get them from the food. Uh, so that's more research to figure out where, uh, what my diet should look like. But I get that sorted out in November and December. And so December 26th, I have now created this differently structured paleo eating plan. So I have to remind everyone, supplements did not stop my decline. The ancestral health movement did not stop my decline. But when I redesigned my paleo diet in a very specific way, and had these additional supplements that I got from my functional medicine. So I'm starting that in Dece at the end of December. In January, I go off to my SNU clinic, but uh, the middle of January I went. And the first week you just watch. So like, oh, I should be able to watch, that's not too hard. And then the third week of January, I'm starting to you know, see patients myself uh, as part of the team. And you know, at the end of the week, I thought, well, that didn't go too badly. And then the next week's like, well, no, that seemed to go okay. Maybe I, maybe I can do this. And then, you know, the next week I'm thinking, now in the month of February, so I'm in my second month of this new way of eating, I'm thinking, you know, my energy is better. And my, my mental clarity is improving. And the third month, I um, have a letter to go mail. And I decide, you know, that's about 200 yards. I get, I, just, I, I use my cane and I walk down and I mail my letter. And so people are seeing me in the hall with a cane for the first time in years. They're like, oh my God, Dr. Wallace, what happened? You're, you're walking. Um, and then uh, uh, six, six months, I uh, have to go see the chair of medicine. I, and I decide, and I, by this time I've been walking all over the VA hospital, but going to the university, you know, that's uh, quite a bit further. And I have to go up the hills, like, oh, that's too far. I better take my uh, scooter. Uh, and it dies on the way up. So I end up having to, uh, uh, you know, unhook the drive shaft and push it up the hill, uh, leave it by uh, the entrance. Uh, and I walk to my uh, chairman's office. Of course, by then I am late. Uh, and he sees me and he, he's stunned. And that that's, that's where the whole conversation begins. It gives me assignment of, well, this is such a big deal. You're writing the case report up. Um, and then at nine months, I uh, get on my bike and I ride my bicycle around the block. I'm crying. My two children are crying. My wife is crying. And then at 12 months, I do a 20-mile bike ride with my family. So this, clearly, I'm, I am transformed in terms of how I think about disease and health. I have transformed how I'm practicing primary care. I'm spending a lot more time talking about diet uh, and lifestyle. The track brain injury clinic, I, you know, I'm seeing these patients and I'm going, wait, there's a lot we can do. We can uh, adjust your diet, we can meditate, we can uh, add more exercise. And it's becoming apparent that people can tell, the people I see in the track brain injury clinic are doing remarkably better. Then my uh, chairman of medicine, you know, calls me back and you know, I have to do that case series. We get that done. Then he calls me back and says, 
got to get a feasibility study going and got to raise money. Uh, so somehow I managed to get all that done. And we'd get our little clinical trial going. Uh, and every year at the uh, uh, research week uh, for the university and the BIA, I'm presenting uh, our progress. And people are, are seeing that you know I'm getting people to, to adopt this very intense regimen. Uh, and that we're getting these remarkable results in quality of life and fatigue. And then we started showing the videos, the remarkable videos uh, of how much people improve. Uh, and, you know, people are beginning to think like, God, maybe I am on to something. Uh, and then the uh, chief of medicine at the VA uh, calls me to say, you know, we got to pull you out of, prim uh, out of the primary care clinic. Uh, and we want you to have your own clinic uh, so you can run things the way you would like to run them. And uh, actually, I tell them no, that I can't do that uh, because this is going to be too controversial. Uh, uh, but if you can get the chair, the, uh, the chief of staff, and the hospital director to sign off on this, then I would do it. And so, okay, it's it. You know, I'll, I went back to the clinic and... Two weeks later, I'm back with the chief of medicine. He goes, yep, they've signed off. Uh, I was like, oh. So it, it, we started the process of setting up uh, a new clinic, uh, and we got the lifestyle clinic going. Uh, and we had such uh, success uh, uh, that we went from individual appointments to group appointments. Uh, then the uh, VA central office heard about our success. They came out to uh, see what I was doing. Uh, we were able to write a grant, uh, add more staff, uh, and then uh, so we had tremendous success. Uh, but then in 2016, you know, I made the big decision uh, to retire from the VA uh, so I could spend more time traveling the world, uh, teaching all this stuff, uh, and have more time uh, for my research platform. So that's my story in, in a quick uh, summary for you. Wow, what a story. You have been incredibly busy publishing research, seeing patients, raising a family, and recover and doing this all in the face of of being quite ill yourself. Um although better and better and better over time. So you mentioned that you were quite skeptical at first. Can you summarize just sort of how your perspective on medicine has changed from when you initially thought about becoming a doctor to now? You know, um, so when I, when I became a doc, um, I, I was probably a, a little bit different because my undergraduate degree is a, 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 in art, in painting. But still, as I uh, went through basic science and got fully indoctrinated, I got fully indoctrinated. I embraced the scientific method because uh, I, I do, in fact, love science. Uh, and I did a lot of that very skeptical uh, approach to complementary alternative medicine. Uh, and besides, the, the drugs are very powerful, very effective, and do a great job of controlling symptoms. But in practice, you know, people get needing more drugs, uh, additional drugs, higher doses. And despite treating people aggressively, they kept developing a additional diagnoses the longer we took care of them. Uh, and then, but, you know, that's, that's what I learned. And so I wanted the uh, newest drugs, uh, best technology. And then I became a patient. And like most patients uh, who are physicians, uh, I, I go read the science. As soon as I'm diagnosed, I'm like, holy shit, this is really terrible. Uh, when I see it's a progressive disease, rapidly disabling, um, that was very, very sobering. Uh, but I 
want the best conventional drugs. So I head down that path. And then when those fail, that's when I start realizing if I want to do everything that I can on behalf of my family, because you know, like many women, I'm much more willing to work harder for my kids and my family than for me. So I was like, well, man, I, I owe it to my family to do everything that I possibly can to figure out how to slow my disease. Um, and so that's how I rationalized for myself the intensity of the effort that I was putting in, into all of this. And then as I recover, I'm like, well, this is really pretty interesting. Now, in that journey, I, I mentioned that you know, I discovered the ancestral health movement, the paleo uh, uh, community. And you know, I read through that. I thought the science made sense. And, and it intuitively makes a certain amount of sense that over the thousands of generations, that uh, when we were hunter-gatherers, that that environment was what our genes uh, evolved on and is probably more aligned with better health outcomes. So I was a little frustrated that I wasn't getting better, but I accepted that uh, I, I was terribly ill and who knew how many, how long it would take to rebuild me. Uh, and then, you know, when I discovered uh, functional medicine, I really uh, appreciated the, uh, the science, uh, the uh, rigor uh, and the use of peer-reviewed literature to guide what it was that we were doing. So I appreciate that. Um, it, but when I synthesized the two, uh, and I used uh, functional medicine principles uh, in what I learned from the ancestral health community, that is when I was able to create this uh, very intensive diet and lifestyle program. I think taking the best of both worlds that in a stunningly rapid uh, period of time, I went from still profoundly disabled, having nearly incapacitating pain, uh, uh, severely disabled because of fatigue uh, and severe gait disability, to walking, biking, uh, having plenty of energy, mental clarity, lecturing, and then ultimately uh, writing books and doing research. Uh, it, it, and but after remind everyone, you know, the supplements didn't fix me. Ancestral health didn't fix me. Uh, it was it was more complicated than all of that. Um, and, and I had to, it was the synthesis of both communities that yeah. led to my recovery. So I think this is a common theme that with complex chronic disease, whether it's MS or Alzheimer's or even something like diabetes, that it doesn't come down to just not, not even just one pill for one symptom or for one diagnosis, but it's not one supplement either. It's not Correct. it's not just exercise. It's sort of this whole lifestyle approach. So what are other components when you th when you see someone with complex chronic disease, maybe it's MS or something else, what are all of the components that you want to consider? So, you know, I, I, talk, I talk about this in my book. So the diet, hugely foundational. You have to stop the destruction. Uh, and you want to give the building blocks you need to do the repair work. Um, you want to rebalance the uh, hormones as well as you can. Uh, and so uh, stress reduction, uh, because it's when we perceive safety and our parasympathetics are elevated and our sympathetics are suppressed, that our cells get the signals to do the maintenance uh, and repair work, to make our hormones, to do our detox, and to do uh, the rebuilding that happens. So we, we have to have that sense of safety. We also have to sleep at night. When we are sleeping is when we do a lot of the detox work. It, when we are sleeping, our brain clears out the amyloid. And amyloid is not a bad thing, folks. Amyloid is the last defense against toxins and microbes 
that enter our brain. So the amyloid gums that stuff up. And as you sleep at night, your brain will clear the amyloid out. So we need the amyloid to, to protect us, but we also need to be able to clear it. we got to sleep to do that. And for the hormonal signaling, our, our bodies have been used to having the mitochondria in our muscles fully engaged uh, to cause the shortening of the muscle fibers. And that process is very inflammatory. It makes a lot of uh, changes in the cytokines that lower inflammation. It makes uh, changes um, in the hormonal signaling molecules that build uh, muscle strength, uh, tendon strength. Uh, it will also uh, include the signals that add to the mineral content of your bones. It will uh, make nerve growth factors that nourish the nerves in the periphery and that nourish the brain tissue and the spinal cord tissue. It will also make endorphins in the brain very anti-inflammatory. Uh, uh, our, our toxin exposures. Now, we, we do, in fact, uh, benefit from, uh, you know, the plants we eat are a mixture of things that are incredibly good for us and a few things that are sort of bad for us that we have to metabolize and get rid of very quickly. But doing that work revs up the enzymes in our livers uh, and uh, kidneys uh, and sweat glands to handle those compounds very well. So encouraging people to have this huge uh, diversity uh, of plants helps with that detox process, but encouraging them to take care of their bowel movements so they're pooping easily because about 25% of your uh, detoxification is in your gut. Uh, and if they can tolerate sweating, uh, doing uh, activities that will be associated with uh, a big sweat, whether it's being, uh, doing a sauna or in Iowa, this is really easy, just be outside in July and you know sit outside and sweat a lot. It's really good for you. Uh, and then social bonding. We uh, have, uh, we're a social species, I and mean, for the vast majority of us, if we are not connected to others uh, and we have loneliness, that drives up our inflammation. Uh, and that's actually associated with disease acceleration that is uh, uh, more damaging than smoking cigarettes, for example. So having social bonding, meaningful relationships, um, and also talk about what is it that you want your health for? What is the journey? What is your hero's journey? What, what was the stuff you had to learn, internalize, and you can bring back to your community to help them in their journeys? How do you have a good life in your current health circumstances? How can you have a pleasant life in your current health circumstances? How, do you, how can you contribute to your family in your current health circumstances? And how could you contribute to your society in your current health circumstances so you have a more meaningful life? And, and in my uh, VA clinics, we would work through those exercises uh, in our skills classes. And what the vets taught me was addressing what I call, these are those resilience factors, are some of the most profound work that we do because that's how people are willing to do all the other hard things they ask them to do, give up foods they love, eat foods they don't, that don't taste good to them at first, begin a meditative practice, begin exercising. But to do that work, because it is work, uh, uh, helping them work through their resilience factors, their why, their um, uh, uh, hero's journey uh, is very empowering. That's incredible. So tell me, um, 
how MS is what you were diagnosed with. This is a neurodegenerative disease that was progressive for you. So there's a couple types of relapsing remitting MS and then this very progressive MS that usually leads to death relatively quickly and certainly lots of disability in between Mm -hmm. diagnosis and death. Um, You phenomenally reverse that just in a very inspirational way. Um, So some people are diagnosed with MS, but there's a lot of other neurodegenerative diseases, things like ALS, Alzheimer's, dementia. Um, There's a whole Parkinson's, a whole host of them. And there's a lot of similarities and then some differences. Can you go into that? Sure. Um, So uh, MS, uh, we got very intrigued with the level of inflammation uh, that people see, and you do these uh, MRIs, you see these enhancing lesions showing uh, active inflammation. But over time, you also see in MS a lot of atrophy of the brain and the spinal cord, uh, and the level of uh, number of inflammatory lesions uh, tends to diminish. If you look at uh, some other diseases, uh, such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, uh, there's there's not so many enhancing lesions, and you see a steady uh, uh, progression or steady level of atrophy. If you look microscopically, however, you'll see even in Alzheimer's, there is a lot of inflammation. And in Parkinson's, there is a lot of inflammation. If you look at mental health issues, uh, you may uh, see some level of atrophy. There's certainly evidence for oxidative stress. And again, microscopically, there is evidence for inflammation. So in one sense, at a uh, molecular level, in terms of the cytokines uh, indicating inflammation, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, mitochondrial level, uh, oxidative stress, in terms of the higher levels of pollutants, uh, solvents, heavy metals, we see that in all these diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, mental health problems, uh, the neuroinflammatory diseases, whether it's neuroinflammation because of MS, because of RA, because of uh, Bichette's, because of inflammatory bowel disease. Those molecular things are happening in all those diseases. The uh, target uh, systemically across the body may be a little different, which is one of the reasons why, and I talk about this in my book, that we're treating the same disease. I'm treating the cells. I'm trying to create a healthy environment for the cells. And as we do that, Uh, because life is a series of self-correcting biochemical reactions, often these cells get steadily healthier, leading to uh, healthier tissues, leading to healthier organs, leading to decreased symptom burden, leading to decreased need for medications. Then we have to start backing off on uh, blood pressure meds, on blood sugar meds, and gives us the opportunity to decrease mental health meds and the opportunity to think about and evaluate, can we decrease these anti-inflammation meds and some of these disease-modifying uh, immune-suppressing drugs? So it, it always has to be interpreted very carefully in the context of that individual person. But you know, certainly in my clinics at the VA and in my own uh, uh, private clinic, uh, we see people with a wide variety of uh, health challenges. We use a, we personalize a protocol, but the basis is very similar across all these disease states. And we monitor their progress, and we're often able to steadily reduce meds, get people off uh, meds, simplify their medication list, and occasionally get people off medications uh, entirely. So in your opinion, does the diagnosis matter? Well, um, the diagnosis does matter in that, yes, you know, uh, say someone's got uh, Huntington's disease, they'll probably still die from their Huntington's. I can probably improve their quality of life and slow down the speed of their decline. 
uh, with ALS. Occasionally, we've been able to stop the decline and occasionally uh, have significant improvement. Uh, but for, the, for everyone, regardless of what your disease is, the, the goal is still the same. Reduce inappropriate inflammation, reduce oxidative stress, reduce toxin exposure, improve the hormonal milieu, and then see what level of self-correcting biochemistry can happen and what the impact is on overall symptom burden. So it, it, it does matter, but addressing cellular dysfunction is what matters most. So it sounds like the diagnosis is important in terms of prognosis and in terms of individualizing, but really most chronic inflammatory diseases will benefit from applying your type of protocol. Yeah, the key thing is you have to be alive. <laughs> be able to fog a mirror. Yeah. So tell me about the role of mitochondria. I listened to your TED Talk recently, and um, that talks significantly about the role of mitochondria in these yeah. diseases. Can you speak to that more? Yeah, you know, about a billion and a half years ago, uh, the uh, mitochondria, our ancestral mitochondria, uh, was the first organism that developed uh, the enzymes to handle oxygen more effectively, and that gave it a competitive advantage. It was engulfed by a larger bacteria, and they developed a very happy cooperative relationship that would evolve into multicellular organisms, into animals, and of course, eventually into us. It does mean that we depend on those mitochondria to generate energy for our cells that have since specialized into you know, uh, nerves, bones, gut, uh, uh, endocrine uh, glands. Uh, and when the mitochondria are working well, that tissue, that organ works really well. But when the mitochondria have been poisoned by uh, toxins, such as uh, mercury, cadmium, or solvents, or insecticides, then the mitochondria doesn't work well. Uh, it develops a lot of oxidative stress, can't make as much energy, and that organ uh, becomes uh, dysfunctional. And so you may develop brain fog, or chronic pain, or heart failure, or uh, visual dimming, or worsening of your diabetes. Trying to help that mitochondria function better can lead to more effective tissues, more effective organs. So mitochondrial supplements can be very helpful. But uh, often, uh, people, if you keep feeding yourself a terrible diet, uh, uh, keeping yourself surrounded with toxic chemicals, those mitochondrial supplements will not do very much for you. So you got to stop poisoning the mitochondria. So that's where... Uh, a very targeted diet uh, and uh, paying attention to your toxic exposures has such a profound impact. And then, yes, there are times where adding mitochondrial supplements can be a very nice adjunct. So you've talked about, you know, your research, seeing patients, um, your travels around the world, teaching about this. What, it, what do you see the future of Terry Walls being? What do, are you still seeing patients if somebody has been diagnosed with MS and yes. they want to make an appointment with you? Is that possible? Or do they go to one of your seminars? How do people learn more so, from you? So if they go to my website, terrywalls.com uh, forward slash diet, you can get a one page handout very nice. Uh, it's a quick summary of the concepts. I will second that. I use it all the time in my practice. I email it. I hand it out to my patients, and it is it, very digestible, practical, fantastic information about what to eat. It's a great start. 
Uh, the book gives you more information, uh, a lot of inspiration, very helpful. Uh, we have a seminar uh, every uh, summer uh, where we have hundreds of people come, uh, patients, clinicians, uh, uh, and their families uh, to learn uh, from me and my team for three days and a lot of skill building. Phenomenal, life-changing experience. And we do basically a group uh, functional medicine consult uh, so people learn a, a huge amount about their illness, their why, and develop some very specific uh, goals and standards of what they can do. I also have, uh, again, a small private practice, and you can learn more about that, again, at uh, terrywalls.com, uh, about who would be appropriate uh, and what kind of services that you could get from that. We have a menu program for people who would like to have more support with implementing, whether it's a level one, level two, or level three diet, with menus, recipes, and shopping lists. We have folks love that as well. Uh, we are working on, we'll soon have our exercise at eSTEM course. I'm very excited about that. So if you, if you sign up for our uh, newsletter, you will hear when that's going to be uh, released and available. Uh, so that will be very exciting. Now, uh, the future, what's happening in the future? Um, so we're writing more grants. The, the next really big uh, grant uh, uh, proposal we're trying to do is a newly diagnosed uh, MS patient or clinically isolated syndrome who has been offered drugs as declined drugs, we, what, we um, are, are trying to raise funds so we can run a cohort study where these folks come in and basically do the WALS protocol, diet and lifestyle, get MRIs and uh, ocular coherence tomography, so detailed vision tests at baseline, and then we support them with the protocol, see them at 12 months, repeat all the measures, including the MRI and the ocular coherence tomography, vision function testing. And we also have a cohort of newly diagnosed MS patients who are, are doing the usual care. And then we'll do a statistical analysis to see, does diet and lifestyle, is that inferior to uh, disease-modifying drug therapy? Uh, and th this uh, would, uh, is, a, is a, a huge, hugely big deal study. Uh, it'll cost us about a half million dollars. We have, we're halfway there in our fundraising, so we're hoping we can find uh, another philanthropist who could close the gap uh, in that ideally I'd like to launch that study at the end of this year. So I had two questions for you, and it sounds like you sort of answered both of them. One was if you could do any research that you wanted to without funding or time or anything being an obstacle in your way, what would it be? And it kind of sounds well, like you just, just, just described I it. I just described it because... <laughs> Um, people would really would like to know, can I decline these toxic drugs that have a, a high risk, and if I just do diet and lifestyle, am I hurting myself? Uh, and the way to really answer that is at least to do a parallel cohort study where you have people doing the uh, best drug therapy, and we have people doing the best lifestyle therapy. And what happens with uh, their brain volume, what happens with the number of acute lesions, what happens with their function? This would be a huge study, uh, basically for every systemic autoimmune issues, because uh, that's the question where all, all the functional medicine docs are wrestling with is, uh, people want to come, come to us, uh, is a functional medicine approach just as effective as these drugs that cost fifty dollars to $100,000 a year? And you and I, our perspective is, yeah, that's what we see. Our peers need to see someone do a rigorous uh, study 
where you have blinded assessors assessing the outcomes of both studies and get that published. That's how we change clinical practice. And um, that's what we're going to do. So my other question was, what do you see the role of drug therapies being in, in the treatment of neurodegenerative diseases? And it sounds like perhaps that study would answer that question, but do you have a sense as a clinician? What's the role? So, so my, my advice to patients right now is, regardless of what you decide about drug therapy, you want to do a therapeutic diet and lifestyle to protect your brain as well as you can. And then uh, my neurology colleagues who, are, who, are, who here are part of my clinical trial, they know that they have patients, some of whom are, they, uh, they recommend drugs to everyone. They also recommend diet and lifestyle to everyone. And in this area, they have plenty of new patients who say, I don't want the drugs, I just want to do the walls thing. And so what they work out is come see me every three months, and as long as you're doing great, the walls thing will be fine. And we'll do an MRI every six months, and as long as you're doing well, then, then it really is safe. And so I, I think that uh, is, a, is a very reasonable option with a systemic autoimmune thing is before you start the drugs, do aggressive uh, diet and lifestyle, but have close follow-up to confirm that you are continuing to do well. Once you've started drugs, now it's a more complicated question because when you stop these drugs, there is a risk of rebound. And so there's really no research that can guide. So how long do you have to be on your good diet and lifestyle before we know that it's safe to take you off these drugs? Uh, and that's a question that we'll talk about at the seminar. We'll be reviewing the research and discussing uh, the nuances behind that question. Do you think that the drugs contribute to the toxicity? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and they also accelerate aging because we, we rely on our immune cells to maintain and repair us. And when you block immune cell function, they can't re- repaint, uh, uh, repair us and maintain us as well. So we're going to age more rapidly. And we already know that you have higher rates of infection, higher rates of cancer uh, on these drugs. But untreated, these major systemic autoimmune diseases lead to uh, rapid declines in severe disability. So that trade-off makes sense to them. And unfortunately, a pharmaceutical industry uh, hires uh, PhDs in health economics to figure out how to price most aggressively for maximal profit. Uh, which is very understandable uh, from a business perspective. We need researchers like myself who are willing to go out there to study this question uh, and try and answer, is a therapeutic lifestyle just as good as these biologic drugs at protecting brain volume uh, and turning off disease activity? $250,000 is what we need. Yeah, it sounds like the other component you need is a philanthropist or two or three. Yes. Yes. Got it. You know, I'm very hopeful because we're halfway there. Right. And and you're getting out and spreading the word and and telling people how effective this has been. Do you see... any medication? So you're you're in the research world. You work closely with neurologists. Do you see yeah. any medications that are maybe coming up through the research tract that might be um, beneficial that you would be excited about? Uh, yeah, actually, I don't follow the uh, medications uh, at all. Uh, I do follow. There's some very interesting studies, uh, say lipoic acid, uh, uh, turmeric. So we have some interesting supplement studies showing uh, neuroprotection, reduced oxidative stress, uh, protection of brain volume. Um, and, of course, it's always way easier to do supplement studies one at a time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so in my 
again, in our seminar, we talk about these supplement studies, uh, and I have some uh, comment as to what supplements are most exciting uh, and maybe something that people may want to think about adding. Which um, ones do you think are most exciting? Do you mind sharing? Uh, like uh, lipoic, uh, uh, turmeric, uh, and of course the omega-3s. And then what else would you want someone to know? So um, if they've either been diagnosed with one of these diseases or they're trying to prevent a neurodegenerative disease, or maybe even someone looking to optimize, is there anything else you'd want to share that would be important to have in their lifestyle to be thinking about? Pick up the Walls protocol, read it thoroughly, uh, and implement what you can. Uh, I would also uh, invite you to think deeply about what you want your health for. Uh, and yeah, I think it can be really helpful to have some big uh, goals. Uh, so for some of our folks, the, the big goal is that I want to walk my son or my daughter uh, into the church for their um, wedding. Or the big goal is I would like to ride uh, in the uh, great bike ride across Iowa. Or the big goal is that I would like to walk a 5K. Um, so I encourage people to have a big goal that involves using their body. Uh, and uh, for some reason, that is an incredibly powerful motivator to help people decide that it's worth making better choices about their diet and making better, cho more reliable choices about their physical workouts. How inspiring. Dr. Walls, thank you so, so, so much for your time. We, again, we know how busy you stay um, teaching everyone about your experience and doing the research and seeing the patients. Thank you for your contributions. Um, your why has certainly been powerful, and I'm, I'm grateful for it as part of this community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Terry Walls. If you like this episode, then please share it with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. If you're hungry for more information to take control of your overall health and well-being, check out our free ebook that offers a well-rounded approach to brain health, The Foundational Guide to Neurohacking at neurohacker.com guide. Make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.